Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. In March 2020, Australia began to introduce a range of restrictions to stop the spread of the new and deadly novel coronavirus. This included restrictions on social interaction and, as the year unfolded, lockdowns across the country. During the first round of lockdowns, concerns emerged about the impact on people's mental health and well-being. Children struggled to learn remotely, and for those living in contexts of disadvantage, often without access to internet or even appropriate devices, and the challenges were overwhelming. Parents struggled to balance working from home with homeschooling, while others struggled with no work as places of employment closed. Reports of increased domestic violence were deeply concerning as lockdown created increasing stress and tension. Over a year on, the pandemic continues. While Australia has had periods of relative freedom, the recent outbreaks have reminded everyone that the threat of this virus remains real and it continues to spread and to mutate. Over the past few weeks, more than half of the country has been in lockdown, and in all likelihood, restrictions in Greater Sydney will continue for some time to come. While the first lockdown saw the immediate adoption of coronavirus supplements to ensure that people's livelihoods were sustained, this time financial support has not been forthcoming in a coordinated manner. And of course, this is happening against a backdrop of phenomenally high costs of housing and for many what is an existential threat of climate change. So there is a lot going on in people's lives. While the physical impacts of COVID-19 are very real, as the mounting death toll shows, the pandemic is also having a significant impact on people's mental health and emotional well-being. From the toll of isolation to financial insecurity, this pandemic has left many feeling disconnected, anxious and fearful. So how is Australia in particular responding to the mental health impacts of the pandemic? And how can policymakers ensure people's mental well-being is cared for during this time of crisis? It's these critical questions that we're going to be exploring on the pod today. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and the region. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School, and I am joined again in the studio today by Anna Greta Hunter. Oh, it's great to be with you, Sharon. It's so nice to be in the same space. It really is great to be face-to-face rather than trying to do this virtually um, over the net. Absolutely. 
As our listeners will know, Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net. It is produced here at the Crawford School of Public Policy, which is the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate policy school. And do remember to check out the range of degree programs and chore courses that we've got on offer. You can find everything at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. So Sharon, it's great to be physically in the studio. And for those of you who don't know me, my name is Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and I'm a physician. I'm part of the ANU Medical School and I'm the Human Futures Fellow for the College of Health and Medicine here at ANU. We might just start by thanking everybody for their thoughts and their feedback on the leadership mini-series that we wrapped up last week. I know you and I had a great time recording that series of conversations around- We had a ball. (laughs) Absolutely. So the history of leadership, leadership as we're beginning to see new forms emerging here in Australia and what we might expect from the future, particularly if we can contend with some of the gender challenges that have been, have dogged perhaps our history uh, of contemporary leadership in Australia. So it was a fabulous series of conversations and it's one that I know I keep going back over. We do like our mini-series, don't we, Sharon? We actually really enjoyed putting together the uh, wellbeing economics conversation that we had through the end of 2020. And again, I tend to recommend the series to people and uh, those individual conversations were quite extraordinary. But it's the series of conversations which which certainly made for good beach listening. And so are we tempted to do this again, do you think? I I think we should, Anna Greta. We do love a good mini-series. And we always say that what we want to do on the pod is to dig a little deeper into those big issues that are facing the world. And the miniseries give us a chance to do that in some real depth. So we've got something special yeah, coming we up. we do. I was reflecting with a friend just recently that, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic that that it felt like so many things in the world were uncertain and it was an opportunity, maybe the window of, of significant transformative change was open. And I was just reflecting recently that I'm not sure how widely that window ever opened and whether or not we may be able to still see changes afoot over the years to come. But now is definitely the time to be thinking differently. So let's start thinking about work. Let's think about work, the history of work. Let's think about the role that work plays in our lives and the ways in which we can work differently, perhaps into the future. Does that sound interesting? I think this sounds like a fantastic idea. And as Anna Greta and I have talked about this over the past few weeks, we've come up with some fairly spectacular guests to talk some of these issues through. Have uh, we ever? Yes. <laughs> so so stay posted for next week <laughs> to see who we have um, to talk through some of these really important issues about work. And of course, I think people will be pleased to know that we will be looking not just at paid work, but at unpaid work and care and continuing those conversations we are having about valuing care. But before we get to that, we have a really important episode today where we're going to be talking about some of those mental health impacts that that I just outlined. Anna Greta, would you like to in- introduce the, the fairly spectacular guests we've got today to we talk do, about these We issues. do. I feel so lucky for the guests that we managed to, to recruit onto our podcast, and today is no exception. We've got two guests with us today, Professor Louis Salvador Carula. He's the head of the Centre for Mental Health Research at the ANU Research School of Population Health. He's been an advisor to the Government of Catalonia, the Spanish Ministry of Health, the European Commission and the World Health Organization. His research has been focused on developing decision support systems in health and social policy. 
And alongside Louis is Dr. Cassandra Goldie. Cassandra will be known to many of our podcast listeners. She's the CEO of the Australian Council for Social Services, or ACOS, which is a national advocate for action to reduce poverty and inequality and is the peak body for the community service sector in Australia. Cassandra is the adjunct professor with the University of New South Wales, where she also completed her PhD. She has public policy expertise in economics, social and environmental issues, civil society, social justice and human rights. And alongside that, she was previously director of sex and age discrimination within the Australian Human Rights Commission. It is fabulous to have you both with us today. Welcome, Cassandra and Louis. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Fabulous. I'm so looking forward to this conversation today. Um, Lewis, you were last on our podcast about 12 months ago or so, uh, toward the beginning of the pandemic, to talk about the mental health impacts of COVID-19. And of course, in the last year or so, we've learned a tremendous amount about the virus, about how it spreads, about things like R naught or R zero, and about other aspects of epidemiology. But the pandemic hasn't just impacted people directly through the virus. There's been a significant mental health impact as well, be that because of prolonged periods of isolation or because of the financial uncertainty or the roller coaster ride I think that we've all been on. Can you tell us, start by, by painting the picture for us, what do we know about the mental health impacts that this crisis is having on people? Uh, when we ran the first interview, uh, we were just anticipating that there would be major problems related to mental health and, and COVID. And uh, after this uh, first session, we started at uh, the Centre for Mental Health Research, two groups, one was called the Pandemics Mental Health International Network. And we ran a series of webinars to understand what was happening around the world in, in relation to mental health and other problems. And um, then there was a second group uh, that's called COVID Mental Health Behavior and Risk Communication run by uh, Phil Butterham and colleagues at the uh, School of Population Health and Research. Uh, this second group designed a survey to understand what was happening in uh, and what was the impact on mental health uh, related to COVID in Australia. This um, two initiatives provided a clear understanding of a massive impact in mental health, a tsunami that was coming due uh, directly to the impact of COVID-19, but also all the uh, lockdown, isolation, employment problems, etc., that were related to, to the condition. And really, the research conducted by these two groups, the series of publications that that we have made during this year confirm this massive impact, uh, mainly uh, related to what we call common mental disorders like anxiety and depression, but also on severe mental disorders like schizophrenia, uh, on uh, major behavioral issues like social isolation, as well as uh, suicide related to COVID. As a matter of fact, this has um, produced a a major report by WHO that was released by the European Agency of WHO last week, providing a series of clear impacts and the recommendations related to these impacts. 
have we got some numbers around, particularly around depression and anxiety, which I think most people listening will have had some personal experience with, either for themselves or with those around them, about how common problems to do with depression and anxiety might be in our population? Yes, uh, there, there has been a major increase in, in the numbers related to anxiety and depression. And uh, what we have is a clear increase, twofold increase in both in anxiety and depression in the in the general population in Australia, where uh, the impact of COVID has mainly been limited to the consequ- consequences of containment measures and seclusion, and not that much of the rates of infections and and deaths as it has happened, for instance, in Italy, in Spain, or in the US. Yeah. It's it's interesting. It's it's like some of the other information we can get around medicine for coronavirus. We see this the the raw data in a population where the virus is less common. Pandemic fatigue, though, is something we can comment on a year later. And so so are we seeing beginning to see the mental health impacts of pandemic fatigue? And what does that what sort of impact does that have on people? One of the uh, papers we have published is the unfit of the classification of pandemics that uh, were developed by the Center for Disease Control in in United States and by WHO to understand these pandemics. The systems were developed thinking in flu uh, mainly and other types of outbursts than in the last 20 years. And really, this is not applicable to what we have seen here. And that has created a situation where aspirations and and hopes of the populations uh, and and the policymakers are completely overrun by the pandemic. We were thinking something like the uh, flu in um, 1918, that it would be uh, something happening for two years with a serious impact in the population and then uh, it will disappear. What we are facing, and we were talking then about post-COVID, what will happen later. What we are seeing and is uh, a pandemic that probably is going to stay for a long period with us. And where all these premises and assumptions that were developed in relation to what was going to happen with COVID have to be changed. And uh, this is creating this exhaustion uh, of the population because everything was prepared for two waves, two years, and that everything would be over by the beginning of 2022. And it's clear that it's not going to happen. Cassandra, ACOS is is very much at the coalface of of some of these issues and the organisations that that you work with are, are right there supporting people who are struggling with a whole range of issues. What are the organisations that you work with telling you about the impact that this crisis is having on people regarding both mental health and, and wellbeing more generally? And are you hearing that things are deepening as this so-called pandemic fatigue sets in and we know that this is for the long haul? So it's very clear that multiple impacts of the pandemic have hit hardest people who have been pre-pandemic in a range of more vulnerable, uh, insecure uh, circumstances. So um, people whose 
incomes were very low, people who were in very low paid or casual work. Um, this is also very gendered. We know that, um, for example, single parent households, uh, the multiple effects of loss of low paid work in very feminised sectors like hospitality and uh, retail, for example, coupled with the expectations um, multiply of homeschooling. Um, and so an overwhelming set of circumstances that have led to an even stronger sense of lack of control over the needs to, to the capacity to meet your most basic needs. So the social determinants of health are well understood amongst this audience. We really understand the link between uh, having a you know stable income, secure housing, and agency, and what that means to your health outcomes, including your mental health. We know that, of course, one of the most corrosive impacts on mental health is associated with acute, chronic anxiety, elevated hypervigilance, and of course. Everybody has had an element of that, regardless of your income or wealth circumstances. But for people who have been in the more economically vulnerable circumstances, this has in many cases become overwhelming. Now, we predict, we are seeing again with the impacts of lockdowns and the turbulence of the economic conditions, that the safety nets in Australia have not been adequate to provide the kind of stability, the basic sense of economic security, the ability to feed yourself and your children, to have the roof over your head, to not have to worry about those. Well, those are at the core of people's heightened anxiety and distress. And very recently, we partnered with Suicide Prevention Australia to alert the federal government directly to this uh, acute concern we have about our failure to address the basics of security for people to avoid us having highly elevated um, and sustained effects on people's mental health where people were already probably very vulnerable to that because their living conditions did not give them the the control and the agency pre-pandemic and now, of course, that is being further undermined on so many different fronts. And so you're painting a picture that I think many people listening will be able to identify with easily in their own lives and with those around them um, of a significant problem and rise in the mental health impacts from the coronavirus pandemic. Um, Let's just talk briefly about the health system response to that. Lewis, last year you were involved with research that looked at the mental health responses from a range of countries during the pandemic. And in that, you and your co-authors say most systems were under-resourced and under-prepared. Could you paint us a picture of Australia's mental health sector before the crisis and what sort of impact COVID-19 has had on the system and the sector more broadly? The situation of Australia was uh, very different to other countries. On the one hand, we had a system and we have a system that is highly fragmented. So um, there are problems in the integration of the care provision for mental health. On the other, uh, we have a huge development of the uh, digital health applied to mental health. The uh, fragmentation of the system has continued and uh, it has created a major problems for people with severe mental disorders that require a type of services that were disrupted due to COVID. But on the other hand, 
the capacity of the system to implement digital health tools has been uh, impressive. One of them is a whole system of cognitive behavioral therapy and psychotherapy designed and run by Professor Titov that has been implemented, for instance, in, in Western Australia and has been extremely successful. So we are seeing radical disruptive changes in, in the provision of our mental health delivery system that are going to stay and that have been accelerated by COVID. So there are positive and negative sides of the uh, changes in the system uh, due to COVID, and these uh, changes are going to stay. Cassandra, you had noted that Australia's social safety net was not really adequate to deal with the extent and the depth of the challenges that we're facing. I'm wondering what's happening for those organisations that are providing services on the ground and we see, you know, a, a range of issues from increases in domestic violence through to food insecurity and, you know, more and more work required from, from organisations that are providing food banks and so on. What are you seeing in terms of the, the impacts on those organisations who are trying to step into the gap to fill some of these needs that, that we're seeing, particularly amongst vulnerable communities? Going into the pandemic, the social safety net, particularly social security, had been left to atrophy for almost 20 years um, and post the GFC we'd had a successive governments cut away to make budget savings to the adequacy of key social security payments like uh, the unemployment payment now called JobSeeker, which is just $44 a day now, cuts to family payments, those are the crucial payments that are meant to keep low and modest income families out of poverty if they have children in their care, and the moving of many people with a disability or partial capacity to work from the disability support pension, which is higher, down on to the job seeker payment and also many single parents. So um, now once your youngest child turns eight, all single parents are moved from the higher parenting payment, which is not generous, but it's certainly higher than $44 a day on JobSeeker. And so that is how we got to the situation where for single-parent households, mostly women, 40% of the children in their care are living in poverty and overwhelmingly people who are unemployed, unless they were able to top up their Social Security with paid work, were also back in deep poverty. Now, the government last year doubled the rate of job seeker for and added payments to parent parents and extraordinarily for the first time in 30 years dramatically reduced poverty in Australia a moment that the country could seriously be proud and what we saw as social services that when finally people on very low incomes had not a lot but enough to cover three meals a day um, to have stable housing, um, through that period of the lockdowns last year, we actually saw a reduction in the demand on social services and food banks associated with people who were getting Social Security. Now, it did, they, there were huge increases in demand on social services from people on temporary visas who didn't have access to Social Security, who lost overnight, international students, for example, access to any kind of paid work and they were in destitute situations and so this was a very mixed story last year. 
Now, this time round, as the lockdowns have um, been developing all over the country, uh, we just released our latest report to show that there has been a, a doubling of the demand for financial assistance from people in lockdown areas and food relief, for example, international students, again, the doubling of the demand there for food hampers. So these are clear signs of the terrible distress that is happening, of course, in many cases behind closed doors because people are locked down. They can't get on the streets to protest about this, but this is the the fact they are unable to feed themselves because any kind of even low-paid casual work has dried up and people are now either without sources of income or they're on very low social security payments. Now, The government has announced these so-called disaster payments and we had urged them to deliver something like that and the maximum you can get is $600 per week but the government right now has excluded people on Social Security from accessing those payments and so we are collectively as a social services sector on the front line lobbying very hard for governments to fill this gaping hole in the Social Security safety net. It is not adequate. It is crushing for people. And so um, charitable organisations, of course, have a role. There are moments in any family or individual's times where you have a crisis and you need to reach out for help. But we also have, as the wealthiest country in the world, and we are, Credit Suisse has confirmed this year again, that we have topped the globe when it comes to median household wealth, we have all the resources available to us in order to provide large-scale protection from poverty, social protections, income support and access to stable housing for every single person and child in Australia and still we'd have some money left over. So, of course, the charitable sector is there, but what our main voice now is not to say give us more money. Our main voice is and should be make sure that we get Social Security arrangements changed urgently so that efficiently and reliably those payments come directly into the hands of people. And if we are talking about the sort of mental health implications of this, there is something really important about dignity and control. And so to have to be consistently navigating either online or phone lines to try and access, to call out for help from somebody else, a charitable organisation, only further undermines people's sense of dignity and control, which is very different to knowing that you will get into your account regular adequate income support. And so that's why we continue to focus on that as a crucial part of what we call protective measures in terms of mental health. Now, the government has announced a range of mental health services, as you know, and, yes, they're very, very important to have that available, but that is at the same time as they've cut away at these crucial safety nets for people and the social services sector which again is very female dominated, we'll do everything we can to provide that support for people, but it is not the best solution to the circumstances in which individuals are finding themselves in the face of this pandemic. I think it is an extraordinary thing that we demonstrated last year that we had the capacity in this country to lift people out of poverty. And as our listeners will know, most of my research focuses on child poverty and we took great strides in addressing child poverty through those coronavirus supplements. And a policy decision was then taken 
to plunge those children and their families back into poverty. And I, for me, that's what I find most extraordinary about that decision-making process. We should remember the last Prime Minister who said that he wanted to end child poverty, which was Bob Hawke. And as the researchers will tell us, the measures he introduced then, which were also security measures, dramatically reduced by a third within a number of years the rate of child poverty in Australia. So child poverty is entirely preventable and absolutely we demonstrated it that last year. It is not actually that complicated to lift the adequacy of social security and to deliver affordable housing and that is what's needed right now. We are making policy choices. At that point, I think we will take a short break. Listeners, don't go away. We're going to delve into these issues a little more after the break. Uh, We won't be a moment. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems. And people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're still here with Luis Salvador Carulla and with Cassandra Goldie talking about some of the mental health and well-being impacts of the coronavirus pandemic that we are all living through. Before the break, we were beginning to talk about some of the measures that were put in place by the Australian government in 2020 through the coronavirus supplements to support people through through higher levels of, of income support and talking about some of the gaps, but also the removal of some of those supports in 2021, despite the fact that we are still dealing with lockdowns um, and currently almost half the population of the country is in lockdown. Lewis, I, I wanted to draw you back in here. And some of the research that has been done from the ANU has highlighted the protective impact of some of the economic and social measures, but particularly those economic measures that were adopted in 2020. And I'm keen to hear your thoughts on the nature of that protective impact, but also what it does to people when those supports are removed. You know, Cassandra talked about the importance of human dignity, of people being able to access income and other forms of support when they need it. What does it do to people's mental health when they they are not receiving the, the support that they need or when they feel they need to almost be begging for support? Uh, well, uh, Phil Batterham's work on common mental disorders in relation to COVID in the first phases showed how link these problems are to unemployment, financial constraints, and this type of issues. Uh, This is something absolutely clear internationally, 
And as a matter of fact, um, this new uh, report released by the World Health Organization provides a clear statement that social determinants of mental health that include poverty, unemployment, socioeconomic inequalities are critical uh, and that there should be targeted actions uh, to provide financial support to households and to prevent the risk of uh, impoverishment and uh, the loss of employment, etc. So this is absolutely essential in any program. I think that the first initiatives by the government were good if we compare them to other countries. But really, the problem is what do we do now and how we face these problems and what was said before on how we prevent childhood adversity. That, again, is one of the major recommendations of this uh, World Health Organization report. So, Cassandra, can you just map out for us again who in our community in Australia, it's July 2021, um, and it's probably good to time time and date today's episode, but uh, who, who are our most vulnerable population in terms of the impacts of the coronavirus pandemic, particularly from a health and wellbeing perspective? So people on the very lowest incomes, including people with a chronic illness or a disability, people who have experienced unemployment and who are now long-term unemployed, um, people who are unemployed as the pandemic hit, who have now almost a sense of giving up hope about securing sustainable, ongoing, decent paid work. Lower-income women, um, including older women, who were one of the largest growing groups on the unemployment payment pre the pandemic. And we know that with the shocks to the labour market, whilst overall the job growth it was patchy but coming back, we know that people who are face more barriers to getting back into the paid work workforce often are more negatively affected. And so age discrimination becomes a clear feature and the gender issues associated with that are very real. And then people on temporary visas, let's remember that we have had many students and other people who don't have access to Social Security, who are locked in Australia, who can't afford to get out of Australia, but also who have consistently often lost casual low-paid work. So there is a very much the two worlds of the impacts of this pandemic. The people on higher incomes who've got wealth behind them, they're doing extremely well. They've snapped up um, additional properties um, because very low interest rates for you know um, housing loans and property loans we've seen an acceleration in housing prices I mean eye watering over the last 12 months particularly in regional Australia which has meant that people on low incomes single parents for example have faced evictions from properties that used to be affordable for them but they've now been bought by others the um, people of course with wealth are wanting to choose to live out of the cities and so this displacement from social supports as well is a very serious problem because these regional communities have experienced dramatic shocks and that of course again for people more vulnerable has made them even more vulnerable to homelessness. Now announcement this week by the opposition which says that they are now going to support very high income tax cuts. Well that's going to privilege people who have actually done very well out of the pandemic, who've accumulated wealth behind them and many of whom are relatively okay. They're sitting in front of computer screens at home with jobs that they've not lost. But for low paid casual workers as we know they 
have faced acute risks in terms of the pandemic itself, um, as well as a great uncertainty about having secure incomes and also the affordability of the roof over their head. And of course, the other um, announcements are uh, sort of some of the policies associated with housing affordability. Now, these are policies that might sound like they're a long way removed from a pandemic, but for those of us close closer to the issues about why Australia is the wealthiest country in the world, has some of the most expensive housing in the world, and why we have um, consistently higher levels of poverty and disadvantage, including amongst children going into school and all the mental health issues associated with that, these are the kinds of choices that our governments are making, which mean that despite being the wealthiest country in the world, we collect far lower revenue than many others. We're the ninth lowest when it comes to our tax base and that is why we so grossly underspend on social services, including mental health services directly, and then the various sort of social protections that those who are experts in the area of health and mental health know are so crucial to stabilising the living conditions, um, to giving a sense of control and wellbeing for people on a broad level. Mind you, employment is such an important part of that. We know that the people's sense of hope of being able to secure a job is very, very important. And many of the people who I highlighted earlier, for example, if you've got a partial capacity to work, you want a job but we don't invest in the right way into the future. The kinds of jobs that we're investing in and we're creating will not be jobs that will be suitable for many of the people who absolutely have a right to paid work, they want to work, um, and they are now very worried out there about whether the jobs that have been lost are ever jobs that are going to come back. And so we have some big challenges here, but I'm very confident that the more that we rely on great experts, including from the health area, um, we will... Um, um, leaders, community experts, and hopefully next time round the politicians will follow. So there are two really great issues to lead into the next question, Lewis, which is about young people and mental health, and you know both both the cost of housing and the way in which we're thinking about jobs of the future might be two of the potential effects. We do hear a lot uh, about the the mental health impacts on young people from the coronavirus pandemic, the long term scarring impacts of the disruption to their education, uh, to their to their employment, both now and into the future, and to the life that has resulted from the pandemic. What do we know about the long term impact? And, and what can we be doing now to mitigate them? Again, this is uh, one of the major recommendations of this uh, World Health Organization report where there is a major concern on the high-risk population and problems in children, adolescents and young adults. And, of course, we have the essential social contacts have been restricted. There are missed experiences of healthy development, uh, there are major issues in and loss in parts of their education. And this is particularly relevant for the children, adolescents, and young population with pre-existing uh, mental health conditions, intellectual disabilities, and other neurodevelopmental disorders, where there has been an increase of behavioral problems, in particularly in uh, persons with autism or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So it's absolutely essential to uh, prioritize investment in prevention in this population group 
and how do we get to the levels of well-being and quality of life of the uh, pre-pandemic period. So I agree with Cassandra that I, I focus on this population, population is absolutely needed. And how about investment in our mental health services? So there, there's two sides to this. One is prevention and the other side is that you've described, both of you, um, a very large proportion of a population which might be looking to access mental health services. What what can we do to improve that? Are there ways that we can, can broaden the social responsibility engagement in mental health and wellbeing for our population or do we need to invest more in more psychologists, more, more psychiatrists, more mental health services acutely? If we compare uh, the investment on mental health services in Australia and other OECD countries, we are in a quite uh, good situation. Uh, I think uh, we have a major problem that is the efficiency of these services and how integrated these services are. If you have an, an inefficient system and you pour money into this inefficient system, the only thing you get is more inefficiency. And uh, really, this is an opportunity to really think again how our system should look like. It's not a problem to uh, provide highly fragmented and siloed in, in investment in the system, like say, uh, let's increase the number of psychological visits to 40, or let's uh, increase the capacity in beds in this city. Uh, really, we have a clear problem at the system level, and we need to invest in integration, in efficiency, in a high-quality uh, provision of services, combining the new uh, digital tools with uh, uh, classical on-the-ground services. And there is a lack of the systemic approach, the Royal uh, Commission in Victoria or the Productivity Commission report at national level have completely missed this idea at, at the system level of how we increase regional care in general and how we provide a more integrated system, more connected system in the provision of care. And this is absolutely essential now facing uh, COVID. Um, by the way, I think we forgot one high-risk group that uh, should require specific investment and, and prioritization. It's uh, the uh, indigenous population, indigenous peoples. They had very specific problems in, in mental health and well-being, the lack of looking at the problems from this social and emotional well-being, holistic approach. There is a real need uh, to consider this investment, because in, in this indigenous population, the previous factors that we talk about on the social determinants, the social and personal determinants, are, are really impacted, have been really impacted by the consequences of COVID-19. I just wanted to comment on the adequacy of the service arrangements in the mental health area. I mean, the, the recent federal budget course, the federal government did invest $500 million in terms of the uh, a new funding available into the area. The two comments on that, of course, are we are playing serious catch-up here in terms of the level of investment that's needed. The 
general view is that it's in the order of about $3 billion that we need to get to in terms of investment in these kinds of range of services, um, it shows the continuity of service care right through from sort of very frontline community-based mental support services right through to the professional and medical end of the spectrum, but also understanding that there are, in Australia, we have a very privatised set of arrangements as well, and out-of-pocket costs are significant for many people and huge waiting lists when it comes to accessing the public mental health system. And so, again, there are great inequities going on right now in the face of the pandemic where uh, because of the workforce challenges, it takes time to build up a workforce. We know that psychiatrists are extremely hard to get into and they are extremely expensive. And we have stories of people scraping together to get the money to try and get an, one appointment with a psychiatrist. So this is, uh, you know, again, the consequences of underinvestment for a very long time. And where we have a pandemic where there is an absolute spike in need to access mental health, we do not have the depth and the breadth in the service options available to people that we would need, nor do we have it available in a way that would be considered equitable. Cassandra, you you should think that um, we always uh, face problems in relation to uh, levels of investment. I mean, it seems that if we are going to invest millions in a new program on community care, this is going to sort out the problems. And uh, really what we are lacking is monitoring of the quality and the performance and the impact of the changes. I have a major concern with uh, all the uh, proposals developed in Victoria or at at the Commonwealth level because the monitoring system, the evaluation system of what's happening is absolutely lacking. We have a history of reforms and changes and, uh, and proposals an investment that has not been monitored properly. And that's where I think that, of course, we need more money, but it's essential to have evaluation, independent evaluation systems that allow us to understand whether uh, these changes have increased the level of integration and connection of the system, has increased the quality of the care provision, and has reduced the inefficiencies related to an activity-based funding where the specific groups of professionals take a great benefit of these changes and this is not translated. Well, I, mean, I think that's a general comment that can be made about public policy, probably not alone in Australia, but certainly in the Australian context. We rarely actually measure the effects of tax breaks and whether they actually deliver what politicians say they'll deliver, um, hmm. but we seem to question them far less than we do, for example, you know, investment in critical care services. I think we can do both and we should do both. And what, what happens is when you have an adequately funded set of arrangements, you actually have the capacity within it to do the proper kind of stable evaluation and ongoing monitoring that's really needed. Um, and so um, I don't think these are mutually exclusive messages at this point. What happens often is when you underinvest, the service system is so under pressure to deal with the chronic demand that's being presented that the the capacity within that service arrangement to properly do the monitoring and evaluation is stripped out of it. And so we're very worried about that as well. But of course, 
at the same time, you can see that the level of demand and when we look historically at what we did with the deinstitutionalisation of care services in this area, we never actually put the money back in to properly support people in the community to navigate and be supported in their mental health, you know, trajectory, whatever that may be. I think I could listen to the two of you talking about this for quite some time and at the end of it I'm sure we'd actually come up with quite a number of solutions. It does strike me that both of you have touched on the need for a systemic response and that perhaps perhaps controversially one of the most effective mental health interventions would be to provide adequate social financial support to our community so that the stress and agency, uh, stress of financial insecurity was not there. But we do have to bring the conversation to a close and we'd like to finish just by asking both of you to give us one piece of advice. One piece of advice as we go into uh, what will be our our third year of the coronavirus pandemic as we watch this continuing to evolve over both our, our, our country in Australia and the region and more globally. What one piece of advice would you like to give to policymakers to ensure that people's mental health and overall well-being is looked after as the pandemic continues? Lewis, would you like to go first? My advice is, is a general policy advice that uh, we have focused too much on classical epidemiology and too little on managerial epidemiology. That is epidemiology adapted to a changing situation and uh, to very practical policy decision-making. One of the aspects of managerial epidemiology is the importance of health logistics. We are listening things on different types of vaccines. What are the reasons to uh, have Pfizer or AstraZeneca, really what is behind all that is logistics, availability, capacity of doing the things. And and we have to be aware that it's probably uh, COVID-19 is going to stay. Uh, we need to understand how we cope that with that and how we develop logistic systems that allow us to uh, work better in, in practical solutions on the problem. And in relation to that, of course, messages to the population are critical and we have to trust what is behind this message. If there is a problem of logistics in the vaccination, uh, we, we should know it and we should know why we are deciding on this vaccine or this other related to the availability of this vaccine and when new vaccines will, will, will be available in Australia. And this communication system and the building trust in the population it's also related to um, what is the effect on, on mental health of these problems. That, that would be one thing. The other, and this is part of the whole recommendations that are coming internationally, is that this is an, a very relevant moment, an opportunity for really transforming our system in, uh, in something that is um, really beneficial for the population. And that's that would be the main message, Fabulous. that we have to use this, this moment to really uh, transform the mental health system in an integrated system that really works for the population. Cassandra? I think we need to take the best lesson we've learned from the pandemic, which is to listen to the experts, the people who really know what they're talking about. And I think in this area, when we talk about the experts, that's both those who have the academic credentials and also the deep expertise of those most directly affected. And if we allowed that process to happen ongoing uh, with the political system responding to the arm's length advice in the same way as we've had 
by and large, the approach, approach on the pandemic, I think we would go, go a long way to success rather than disappearing the advice into the, into the washing machine of the machinations of a political process all the time. That's what I'd like to see. Oh, that's fantastic. So from Lewis, we've got nuance and uncertainty and good quality communication with shared decision-making. And Cassandra, I think you're asking us to listen to expertise and make make sure that we're actually getting good good information at the table while we're making decisions. Thank you so much to the two of you for today's conversation. It's been wonderful and it's a really important thing for us all to be working and thinking about at this moment in time. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you all. Thank you. So, Anna Greta, what a fantastic conversation that was. And as Cassandra and Louis started to exchange some ideas, I felt we could have kept going for a very long time. Absolutely. And really important conversations. And I find so many conversations we have talk about a significant systems approach and the benefits that we have in terms of some of the major societal challenges of not just looking at one part of the puzzle, but having having a look at the puzzle in its entirety. And that final part of the conversation really helped to me to map that out. How about you? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, this is a conversation that we have all the time in public policy about the problems of the silos and the failure to connect. And I guess in a, in a situation like the situation we find ourselves in with the the coronavirus crisis, you know, the importance of making those connections is more important than ever because people live lives in a connected way Absolutely. and and policy and responses need to recognise that. And we don't do that terribly well. But Anna Greta, I also kept thinking as I heard both Lewis and Cassandra talking about the importance of leadership. We've just come out of our leadership mini-series and I just reflect on the very different ways that some of the state premiers have provided leadership through the series of lockdowns and you see very, very different responses. And I think as a result, very different ways of people thinking about the impacts of lockdown, whether they think that about that in a very individualised way or more in a, a, a sort of a, with a sense of solidarity and community. Oh, look, both Cassandra and Lewis touched on on how detrimental it can be to our health and well-being to have loss of agency and that mean a broadly loss of control of our lives. And that includes being able to map what the future might look like. And that's what we look to our leaders for. And we've seen a, a patchy response. We've seen some amazing leadership, I think, through the coronavirus pandemic. We've also seen periods where our leadership has been wanting. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And so I, I think I will return again to some of our episodes on leadership to, to join those dots. Absolutely. But we have already flagged that we are doing something special next week as we go back into a mini series and we focus on work, which touches all our lives. Shall we share who we've got for our very first episode? Because we are very excited. I was just thinking, you know, we've been through another few weeks where coronavirus can be somewhat overwhelming in our news cycle. This conversation that we had with Professor James Sussman, who wrote an extraordinary book on work, on the, on the history of work and on where work uh, plays a role in, in both modern civilizations and civilizations which are much, much, much older. And the number of times I've gone back over that conversation in my head. I'm so pleased that we're bringing that conversation to open our mini-series on work next week. It should be fabulous. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Is It is a fantastic conversation. It will set this mini-series up well, and we have a series of 
brilliant people to talk with. So do join us over the next few weeks, listeners. We are, I think, in for something special. You can tell that Anna Greta and I are excited. Yeah, we we really enjoyed it. We hope you do too. And so listeners, thank you so much for joining us again today. Uh, We do love hearing feedback and please reach out to us through Twitter on APPS Policy Forum or Apps Policy Forum, or you can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net. You can join our Facebook group by typing in Policy Forum Pod into the search bar and joining that group. We'd love to you to subscribe to our podcast on whatever you, the platform that you're using might be. Uh, and we'd love to hear ratings and reviews on our podcast series. So we are going to be back again next week, the beginning of our work mini series. Very much looking forward to it. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye, Anna Greta. See you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.